News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, doses of the newly approved AstraZeneca vaccine are scheduled to arrive in Canada today. That is very welcome news. So let's get the latest now from our Global News National Ottawa correspondent, Abigail Beeman. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. Okay, so what do we know about this arrival? Uh, Well, we know that the first 500,000 doses are on their way and expected to arrive uh, in Canada today. Procurement Minister Anita Anand saying yesterday they were already on their way. They're coming from India. uh, And that's the first 500,000 of 2 million doses that will be coming from India by May. Uh, This means that combine that 500,000 with the Pfizer doses coming this weekend, we're at close to a million doses that we're expecting to see in Canada this week, which is the biggest boost yet uh, to our vaccine stock. So far, we know that provinces are following the National Advisory Committee on Immunization's recommendations not to use AstraZeneca in people 65 and older. Uh, And so the reason I mentioned that is we also learned that 300,000 of those 500,000 vaccines coming today have a very short shelf life. They expire by April 2nd uh, within 30 days. And so what that means is provinces have to make some really fast decisions about about who they're going to give that vaccine to if it's not to those 65 and older, where, as, as, as we all know, is where the bulk right. uh, of the focus has been. So that means that for a lot of provinces, then this goes outside of what their vaccine plans already exist of. Uh, a little bit to some degree because, you know, there are uh, provinces, a lot of them have been focusing on uh, frontline health care workers, uh, on, on, on essential caregivers to people in long-term care, for example. Uh, and those are categories where you would see, where you could see and you do see people under the age of 65, except there's surely to be some tinkering in the plans and, and where they go next. And uh, yesterday at uh, the federal briefing, Dr. Teresa Tam was asked, well, do you recommend that? this go to some of the populations that have been hardest hit by the pandemic, uh, uh, racialized communities, socioeconomic uh, communities that have been harder hit by this pandemic. And Dr. Tam would, it said that, you know, it's really up to provinces to make those decisions. But again, provinces have to make them really Fast. quickly since yeah. since there's this looming deadline of less than 30 days now. It feels like we're going from zero to 60 when it comes to vaccine distribution, right? Because all this month, are we not supposed to be getting more and more supplies of the vaccines? That's right. Uh, so a couple of a couple of, of nuggets on, on on that file. Moderna was previously shipping on a th- every th- once every three weeks. They're going to ramp up to once every two weeks. And Pfizer is ramping up uh, the the numbers as well. Uh, we are going to be getting seven hundred thousand odd per week uh, come April. Uh, we only know the specifics for the first two weeks of April. But uh, again, this was the, the 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 feds have been saying all along. Oh well, it's go- this was going to happen. We were going to get to this. We're going to ramp up significantly because uh, the the contracts they finally admitted were done based on a quarter. So when everybody was saying, well, don't we have contracts? Can't we make these companies, you know, ship us these vaccines faster? Right. Finally, Ottawa came out and said, well, it's by quarter. So they, you know, have to get them to us by the end of the first quarter. Ah, OK. Hence a very busy March then. All right, Abigail, thank you so much for the information on that. 
Thank you. Appreciate that. Abigail Beeman, our global national Ottawa correspondent, talking about the arrival of the AstraZeneca vaccine today. Half a million doses arriving in Canada, and that means they're going to be distributed to the provinces. But as she pointed out, need to do distribute them quickly because a couple of hundred thousand of the doses actually have an expiry date of April 2nd. So that means here in BC, decisions are going to have to be made. And remember, the saying often goes with health officials, the best vaccine is the vaccine that's offered to you. The one that you can get is the best vaccine. So there will be some choices to make for a lot of first responders, uh, for people like frontline healthcare workers. It's very likely they're going to be offered this up. So we'll have more on that uh, throughout the day today. That'll be questions for health officials here in BC. Well, these days, it feels like there are two topics that are guaranteed to generate headlines. Anything having to do with COVID-19 and vaccines and the Cullen Commission into money laundering. Because boy, have there been a lot of stories coming out of that this week. We're learning more about how Vancouver was one piece of a puzzle that included casinos in other parts of the world, not to mention the real estate angle too. Joining us now once again is Sam Cooper, our global news investigative journalist who has been following along on all of this. Sam, thanks for being here. Thanks. Good morning, Cindy. It seems like every time I ask you, wow, what really caught your attention this week? Um, This week is, again, the same thing, because hearing about the real estate issue once just makes you think, how was all this going on? Like, what really got to you this week? You're right. And remember, the mandate of this inquiry is to find out if corruption or regulatory failure allowed this money laundering to take root in BC real estates and casinos. And I would argue we've already got the evidence that All of that happened. So what we heard this week, let's start with uh, the e-pirate investigation that uh, failed in 2018. Uh, We heard more about this. It's called Canada's largest ever money laundering probe, 300 RCMP investigators at the height. We heard more about the man at the center, Mr. Paul King Jin, an alleged uh, transnational gangster and loan shark. And we heard about his globetrotting Uh, He bragged to an investigator when he was arrested that he had credit accounts in Macau and Las Vegas casinos. He could call them up. He he said, my name is money. That's a direct quote. He could call them, get up to $2 million credit. And Simi, we heard for the first time that he used this worldwide gambling credit to facilitate his own gambling business in B.C. Essentially, uh, the evidence we heard this week is Mr. Jin and his colleagues in the Big Circle Boys set themselves up as competition to BC's government. They were running illegal casinos. We heard of a bust in Mr. Jim's condo, $4.3 million in cash in a gun safe in the master bedroom. We heard of a, a massive illegal casino allegedly set up in a, what I call a farmland mansion uh, in Richmond, $10 million, second most valuable mansion in Richmond. Mr. Jim admitted running that illegal casino Uh, We heard River Rock Casino chips were used in the illegal casino. Uh, We heard Mr. Jin was running around between uh, an underground bank in downtown Richmond, his parents' home where he had luggage stuff with cash, a dim sum restaurant. And and just we heard the scale. Uh, We heard of cash pools in Bogota, Colombia, Mexico City, worldwide that was being run by this uh, operation that used an unlicensed currency exchange, BC casinos, illegal casinos, allegedly running drug cash around the world. That's crazy the way you describe it there. And then where did the houses come into this? Because it seems like they were buying and selling houses like they were those poker chips. 
<laughs> that's the quote that, uh, that really jumped out at me in testimony yesterday. Indeed, we heard from a BC lottery uh, money laundering intelligence analyst. He said, uh, we know the Vancouver model now. That is, uh, you're, you're uh, a, a wealthy person in China wanting to get your cash out of that country. You face borders. You're recruited in a Macau casino by someone like Mr. Jin. You arrive in Richmond and you get a bag of cash. You buy your casino chips. Easy. You're laundering money. And this investigator from BCLC said you could replace casino with quote unquote house. These gamblers coming in from uh, mostly, well, uh, almost exclusively mainland China could get cash. And this is how it worked. They could take out a loan from these same casino loan sharks, uh, put a down payment on a house. Uh, it could be, you know, what we call a teardown or a rundown Vancouver special. They dump cash loans into it, you know, pay cash to uh, contractors all under the table. And then very soon after, they can sell the home. That means they've, they've laundered money. Not only has the, the criminal loan shark laundered money that lends it, but the buyer of the home and the renovator of the home has laundered money. Now sold, Simi, you know what these homes go for in Vancouver. Yeah. Sold it for a few million profit. And again, let's think about that, that quote again. A government uh, official said, you, you, can, you, can, you can buy a house like you can buy casino chips in Vancouver. Okay, this goes to, I remember like, you know, five, six years ago talking about these expensive houses that had like students or housewives, right, listed as the owners or the occupation, because that also factored into this, right? That's right. We, we heard the same investigator testify that, they realized there were uh, gamblers coming into the casino. Remember, to meet Canada's anti-money laundering laws, these gamblers have to write down their identity occupation. So uh, BC's government can judge their source of wealth. Is that, uh, you know, real honest income? Is it drug money, extortion money, or other things? So, of course, you know, uh, no disrespect to students and housewives, but those aren't jobs where you have a lot of income, where you can come in with $500,000 cash and buy casino chips. So these, uh, the BCLC was finding these, uh, these people without incomes were linked to other high rollers in the casinos. These would be, uh, off, well, predominantly men that listed companies, you know, mysterious companies offshore. So they judged that there was a relationship there. Then they'd again look at these uh, housewife and student high rollers and find they had multi-million dollar mansions and of course, the pattern held that they were able to link them to these same uh, hidden high rollers that they knew inside the casino. The implication here is that these people are just fronts for the people behind them. And, you know, from my research, investigators believe very often, uh, you know, these are large scale criminals right. hiding behind them. This is so flagrant, though, Sam. And I know the question that everybody has is, what did the governments know at the time? What did the provincial government know? What did the federal government know? Do we get any sense of, of that? We're starting to get the sense, uh, again, you know, we've been following this for a few months. Uh, we're into the real estate portion now, but uh, the casino portion, uh, the evidence led by the commission lawyers is that the government knew, BC Lottery Corporation knew, there were warnings, repeated warnings, especially from 2009, but all the way back to the late 1990s. Casino managers were warned about men like uh, the person I call the prototypical lottery corporation whale gambler, Mr. Lai Changzing. He was China's most wanted at the time, late 1990s. Everyone knew he was gambling casinos and accused of corruption, large scale. At the same time, 
he wasn't stopped and no one was stopped for uh, for the next 20 years. That's what we've heard so far in the query on the casino side. One more thing that jumped out yesterday that we shouldn't forget a big piece of this is BC lawyers. And we were we heard of some un, an un, I'll call them an unidentified circle of real estate lawyers that uh, lottery corporation investigators found were registering these private under the table mortgages from casino loan sharks to home buyers in Vancouver. And so the, the, the concern there is that they transnational organized crime could be using BC lawyers to register sketchy mortgages. So that raises the question, are these lawyers part of what I would call, you know, a reasonable person? Is this a racket going on? Are BC lawyers, some of them part of the racket? All of this is just astounding to me, Sam, that it not only confirms kind of the reporting that you were doing in years past, but goes well beyond it. So what do we expect to hear in the days and weeks ahead? Well, we're, we're just getting into the real estate portion. So we're, we're right now into what I would call the pipes of the plumbing that, that allowed this money laundering to occur in single family homes. Again, you know, there's a whole, there's mortgage brokers, notaries, realtors, lawyers that uh, could have turned a blind eye to these cash transactions that allow people to launder money so easily, even using BC court cases to launder money in homes. I, uh, you know, I, I think that we'll start to get more visibility on specific lawyers, specific realtors, specific developers. And something I wonder is whether we'll look all the way up to the chain to some of these offshore uh, billionaires that bought large portions of land in BC starting in the late 1980s. And because that is where I call, you know, I would call it an, an upstream issue mm-hmm. when you have people that may have come into Canada fraudulently and bought large portions of land. That's industrial scale money laundering. Well, we will be talking to you again then, Sam. Thank you. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, Global News Investigative Journalist. Now you can read all his stories covering the Cullen Commission into Money Laundering at our website. Uh, that is globalnews.ca. Well worth some deep reads on this subject because everything you thought was happening was happening and more. It is astonishing some of the details that have been uncovered. So check out his reporting, globalnews.ca. Now I went to Simon Fraser University, great school, but one issue that a lot of students have is getting up and down off of Burnaby Mountain. Even if you have a car, while driving is a pain, there's limited parking. Take the bus, sure, but boy, is that a constant parade of buses from the bottom of Burnaby Mountain up to the top. So what do you think about the idea of a gondola heading up to the top of Burnaby Mountain for Simon Fraser University? It would really change how accessible that school is, especially if you do rely on bus service to get up there. Well, a TransLink survey to determine the best route route up for that gondola has resulted in one clear choice for that route. Let's find out more about it. Joining us now is Joanne Curry, Vice President of External Relations at Simon Fraser University. Hi, Joanne. Hi, Simi. So why is a gondola so attractive to SFU at this point? Well, uh, as you point out, it has been a problem uh, getting up the mountain, uh, particularly with uh, bus trips. And there are currently 25,000 trips, transit trips up the mountain, and and that's uh, a number that's going to grow to 40,000. And there's a particular pinch point or challenging area, and it's from Production Way on, on this bus 145. Uh, it's a 15-minute bus ride, but unfortunately, buses, you can be waiting for two, three, four buses. And right now, buses are running every five minutes, and it's not possible to increase the number. So about 12 years ago, gondola technology emerged 
emerged as a top choice for really cost-effective and safe and reliable transit up the mountain. Uh, and that's even in good weather. I, I don't know if you've ever traveled up the mountain when it's snowing or really heavy oh, rain. but <laughs> yes. It's a nightmare. It's difficult. Yeah, it's yucky for sure. So I, I'm quite intrigued by this idea. How many, how would having the gondola change then for students? Uh, the huge change is just their time. And we, uh, we have one of the longest commute times for our students in Canada. And we have the UPASS system. So many, uh, I think over 90% use public transit. So this is going to make uh, their trip a lot quicker, uh, less time spent waiting in lines, and uh, frankly, a lot more enjoyable. It's, it's a very pleasant six-minute ride up the mountain on a gondola. That does sound better. How many people can you cram into that? Like, how often would it run? It would pretty much run every minute, and they would adjust depending on sort of the amount of demand. And there's 35 people that can fit in a car. And the other exciting fact is uh, uh, bicycles as well as wheelchair accessibility, all of that is improved with the gondola. Okay, so, you know, a couple years ago, John, when this was first floated, I was like, really, a gondola up to SFU? But the more I've read about it and talked about it, I'm, I'm on board with this idea. Uh, do you find that it's gaining more traction? Absolutely. Um, I, when it was proposed at the beginning, people were like, what, are you crazy? That's for ski hills. But uh, the fact of the matter is it's now there's 20,000 in operation around the world and dozens and dozens used for public transit, moving large numbers of people very effectively. And this would be very innovative for Canada, and it would be the first use of uh, gondolas for public transportation. So we're, we're very excited about that. And the other reason why it's such a good solution now is because of its uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, it'll be equivalent to taking 1,500 cars off the road, and that doesn't even factor in all the mode shifting of faculty and staff. We have almost 2,000 working at SFU uh, Burnaby, and many of them, I think, would get out of their cars and, and take public transit if they didn't have to wait in long lineups. Right. Is it cost-effective? Like, what's it going to cost to build this thing? Uh, it uh, the estimated construction cost is uh, two hundred million, uh, and there's savings, uh, operating savings, uh, which is unusual for a capital project of thirty five million a year, and then they'll take those twenty six uh, diesel articulated buses that are used on the uh, route and redeploy them in other parts of the region. Uh, so, relatively speaking, for solving this transportation problem, it is low cost, and just in comparison, um, you know, the very needed Surrey Langley. SkyTrain extension is over $3 billion. So very affordable uh, transportation project. Okay, let's talk about the route then. So in this survey that was done on this, what was the turnout like? Like what kind of reaction did you get on the survey? Uh, very good. Um, you know, Transic undertook two stages of consultation and uh, 13,000 voted in the first. And I'm sorry, I don't have the number in front of me for the second. The first was really looking at what, how would you evaluate the three proposed routes? And the second was please tell us what you think. Uh, and overwhelmingly, the first route was chosen. And, you know, it's quicker, uh, six minutes versus nine. But I think the, the biggest impact was because of the environmental uh, considerations, uh, more greenhouse gas reductions, uh, but also it goes over less environmentally sensitive areas as it makes it, its way up the mountain. So uh, it was definitely preferred uh, by uh, the majority of uh, people in Burnaby as well as in the region. That's what I understand. So even people who live in that vicinity, and that's very important to hear from them, they preferred this route. That's right. Uh, uh, high, the highest proportion 
portion of, of uh, Forest Grove residents did prefer Route 1, and I think it was the environmental considerations that were really at work. It obviously is more cost-effective as well. Uh, but we're, we're very conscious that there is a community that is impacted uh, by the gondola uh, most directly, and so we're, we're eager to work with them to, uh, you know, hopefully translate. They've already talked and provided a lot of information, but hopefully uh, as many concerns as possible can be mitigated. So what are the next steps here, Joanne? What happens now? So this is the conclusion of TransLink's consultation with the public. Uh, It will go now in the form of a report to uh, Burnaby Council. And uh, if that's approved, uh, then it goes to Mayor's Council. And then we're going to work really hard to uh, obtain funding from the different levels of government. Well, still some steps to go, but you're on the way. Joanne, thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for your interest. And uh, it's wonderful to talk to a fellow SFU alumnus. (laughs) That's me. Thanks, Joanne. Okay. Thanks, Timmy. Joanne Curry, Vice President of External Relations at Simon Fraser University. I admit, when I first heard about this, I was like, this seems weird, like a gondola to SFU. Why would they do this? But the more I've read about it and looked at it, and I think, you know what? This actually makes sense. Why use the buses if you don't have to use the buses? This could be a bit of a tourist thing, too. Lots of tourists go out to UBC to look at the campus. Now they can go up and have fun on a gondola ride up to SFU to look at the campus too. And for students, this just seems to make more sense. Gets them up there faster. What do you think? Simi at cknw.com. Big federal cash infusion for a project that started right here in Vancouver that we're going to tell you all about. They're these so-called vending machines that dispense safer drugs. And they were pioneered thanks to UBC population and public health professor Dr. Mark Tyndall. Now the federal government is kicking in three and a half million dollars to help expand the program. Dr. Tyndall joins us now to talk more about that. Thanks for being here. Uh, good morning. How are these vending machines working? Well, uh, there's one in, one in operation that's been uh, operating almost oh, for over a year now, actually. So um, my initial experience with it, there's been about 20 people enrolled. It's been uh, extremely uh, successful and positive for the people using it. Okay, so when you say enrolled, what does that mean? How do they work? Yeah, so um, people at, who are at risk of overdose are, are assessed, in this case by myself, as far as their addiction goes. And the, uh, for those who are eligible um, and are dependent on opioids, in this case fentanyl for the most part, uh, they're offered a, a daily supply of hydromorphone pills uh, and they access them through the machine. And so I guess the point here, though, Dr. Tyndall, is that people have to have that contact with you first, right? That that contact with the healthcare system. Yeah, the machine right now, I'm partnering with a community group, the Overdose Prevention Society on um, on Hastings Street. And so everybody there, everybody in the program is, uh, is well known to the uh, society and well known to me. And uh, so, yeah, so they're... Uh, uh, supported and um, as they as they use the machine and we're we've been quite selective initially who who gets access to the uh, to the medications right you said initially because there is some money coming from the federal government uh, to expand the program how is that going to work yeah well I think the the criteria for enrollment will be the same so uh, there's going to be uh, support for five machines uh, There'll be two in Vancouver, one in Victoria, one in London, Ontario, and one in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And uh, there's an eligibility criteria for that. Um, the focus is really on giving people the alternative, uh, a safer drug supply to what they're buying on the street right now. Um, and people who qualify for that program uh, 
will be followed. The emphasis, though, is making sure people have an alternative to buying drugs on the street that are are so deadly and killing them. And um, the observation and the, you know, the expectation is once people can stabilize, uh, they can work on other things and uh, like housing and their health. And uh, we put people in the illegal drug market in such a a bind because they end up spending most of their time uh, searching out drugs. And if we can take that part of their existence away, uh, a lot of good things happen for people. Yeah, what kind of reaction or what kind of results have you seen from this? Well, it's been small. I've been waiting for some funding to expand this. Right now, it's sort of the machine has been uh, um, given to us to use by a company called Dispension. And um, it, myself, is I'm the one that's uh, doing the prescriptions right now, and it's uh, supported by volunteer people. So really, we've, uh, we've been kind of stuck in a very small pilot project for about a year and hope to now expand and have a more comprehensive evaluation. But my initial experience, you know, I know the people that have been on the program. Uh, there's uh, three, at least, out of the 20 that have graduated, so they're no longer using the machine. Uh, two aren't using drugs anymore, and uh, one one person I'm giving a week at a time because they're, uh, they've really stabilized. So, um, And then a lot of people, you know, everybody has done better um, using less street drugs and uh, getting involved in less uh, criminal activity, and uh, nobody's overdosed. So uh, in my very uh, brief experience with a small number of people, it's been highly successful. Well, that does sound promising then. So are you hopeful that with all the talk now about safer drug supply, the federal government kind of getting on board here, that we're going to turn a corner on this? Well, you know, having worked in that community for over 20 years and uh, spending the last four or five around supervised injection sites, I really can come to no other conclusion that people need to be offered a safer supply of drugs. The current situation of poison drugs, we've seen, you know, the numbers just keep on growing and people are dying. And uh, I think the only ethical response is to offer people an alternative to that supply that's in there right now. And, uh, I think that we have come quite a long way with discussions mm-hmm. around a safer supply that weren't really happening even a couple of years ago. So I believe that the federal government's focus on uh, supporting these kind of programs is a very positive move. Um, but still, we really need to scale this up. I think that one of the major advantages of using this technology is it's well suited for smaller uh, communities that right. are still struggling with this and you could pop a machine there very quickly and uh, and get the eligible people uh, access to a safer supply of drugs. Well, Dr. Tyndall, thanks for your time on that this morning. Okay, thank you for your interest. That's Dr. Mark Tyndall, professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health and Infectious Disease Doctor. So we've just been talking about the decriminalization of the drug supply or perhaps even getting like a safer drug supply to help us combat the opioid overdose crisis. Well, the city of Vancouver has actually submitted a plan for drug decriminalization to Health Canada. They're actually calling it the Vancouver model. But what does that look like exactly? Joining us now is Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so tell me about this plan. What does it look like? What does it involve? Well, um, 
the uh, the federal health minister has the authority to uh, give an exemption on a number of uh, uh, all aspects of of uh, legal and health matters, uh, and so uh, City of Vancouver, the uh, council uh, supported my motion to apply for an exemption when it comes to uh, decriminalizing drugs in the City of Vancouver, and uh, Health Canada said they were interested in doing this, and so on Monday. Uh, hitting our first deadline, we uh, submitted what is the first of an iterative uh, application to to the city for, uh, sorry, to the uh, to Health Canada um, for uh, what is uh, what we're calling a Vancouver model of a decriminalization in this city. Right. We did. I did do a double take though when I saw that you called it the Vancouver model because when people hear that they think of money laundering. Uh, you know, Vancouver model is in so many different things. It's uh, but this is Vancouver you know, Vancouver model when it comes to uh, decriminalization. It's a very, very important uh, distinction between, say, the Portuguese model, where drugs have been decriminalized for some time. Uh, We have an Oregon model that is starting to develop since they, uh, since uh, that state voted in a referendum to decriminalize, is that uh, we're really moving towards the health stream, that it's a, a, it's a, it's almost a purely health centered approach where in Portugal and Oregon, there's still, there's still uh, some, um, attachment to the criminal justice system. So, Mayor Stewart, what kind of help do you need from the federal government on this? Well, essentially, uh, we we will submit a, a list of, of drugs that we want decriminalized. And what that means is, is that we will set threshold levels for various drugs that if the police stop you um, for whatever reason and they find that you have uh, some currently illicit substances on you, uh, if it's under a certain amount, then you'll be directed into the health stream, uh, whatever, uh, whether you you are uh, someone that, that's using daily or uh, on the weekend or, or whatever. Uh, if you're caught with these uh, these uh, this kind of um, personal level of abuse, then you'll be directed into the health uh, healthcare systems. Right. Does the system though? Are they prepared to handle that? Because I think that's ideally what we would all like, right? Is that you direct people into the healthcare system? But is our system prepared to do that? Well, that's why our team uh, that's doing this, after council unanimously endorsed this, is uh, is comprised right now of of uh, Dr. Patricia Daly, who's the head of Vancouver Coastal Health, uh, and and members of her team, uh, Vancouver Police Department, uh, City of Vancouver, series of consultants, and of course uh, uh, community members that are very familiar with this, uh, having uh, with lived experience. So what we're doing is we're uh, what we know from the health side is that there will be new. Uh, new uh, systems developed. One would be uh, an overdose outreach team that would be uh, run out of Vancouver Coastal Health, and that would that there would be a live handoff then between the police and the this overdose outreach team. Right. Isn't the key here also though help? Like once you get someone uh, into the contact of the healthcare system, don't you also have to offer them that option of uh, rehab or help or not using drugs anymore? Yeah, there there is a spectrum of uh, so if you think somebody who's uh, kind of a weekend warrior gets caught with uh, cocaine, uh, doesn't use very often, then they'll be given uh, you know directions by a doctor, maybe sent to their family physician uh, for treatment, those types of things. However, if it's somebody who's overdosed, for example, or overdosed on a number of occasions, then uh, they might be introduced to safe supply or other health measures. We are finding that um, uh, just. The evidence I've seen is that a lot of people that are using drugs on a very consistent basis are actually not at all connected with the uh, healthcare system currently. 
So uh, there's all kinds of benefits of this uh, instead of sticking people in jail, which is... uh, you know, right. really the current approach in Canada to dealing with the drug possession. Now, is the Vancouver Police Department on board for this? Because from the way you describe it, they're now going to be a first point of contact for getting people into the health care system. Well, well, they are, the, in most cases, the first point of contact. Of course, they're very supportive. Uh, the national uh, police chiefs have signed off on decriminalization, and this is fully supported by the uh, VPD and Chief Adam Palmer, who is uh, directly involved with getting uh, giving us advice, for example, on what's the difference between personal uh, a personal uh, possession or uh, trafficking. That is really the distinction. How much do you have to possess on your on your person before it's considered trafficking? So those are very technical questions. They vary from drug to drug to drug. There's over 2,000 drugs listed as listed in, in Canada or legal in Canada, and so there is a, a bunch of work to get through here. But we're very happy with our with the first submission that we, we put in on Monday. All right. So this, this would be a number of steps, though, wouldn't it? Because we were just talking about kind of safe drug supply as well with Dr. Mark Tyndall. Where yep. does that factor into this model? Well, you know, it has to be an all-on-deck approach here. So, so decriminalization is one way to get people into the health stream, but safe supply is, is what uh, is, is basically people would have their illicit poison drugs replaced by uh, uh, a legal drug that is prescribed by a uh, medical professional. And, and uh, Dr. Tyndall's machines, and I've talked to him many times about this, are, are, are one way of doing this, uh, meaning that folks don't have to go to a pharmacist every day to, uh, to, to get the drugs they need to uh, kind of maintain their lives, but, uh, but also stay safe. Uh, and so it, it is a whole uh, range of, of measures uh, and things mm-hmm. that haven't been done before really anywhere else because the situation is just so bad here uh, in Vancouver with uh, one person dying a day. And this has been going on for five years. Like we have to try new things. And I, I'm really proud that we're embracing it and the public is behind us on this. So, I mean, these are great ideas, but they are kind of more long-term ideas. They'll take time to implement. What can we do in the meantime to stop the one person a day from dying? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think they're that long term. I, I actually think that decriminalization, I know there's a, a commitment from the federal health minister, Patty Haydu, to get this done. Uh, so I'm expecting that, uh, you know, the submission, the full submission will be in front of Health Canada uh, sometime in the coming months uh, with our next check-in point uh, in a, early April. Supply uh, is already rolling out uh, here in uh, in Vancouver, uh, and we have more and more pickup occurring as I said, Dr. Tyndall's machines are uh, already in use, but there's more coming. And um, uh, and then we have more treatment beds. For example, we've uh, approved a new center on, on Clark and uh, uh, Clark Avenue here in Vancouver. So it's there's a lot, but a lot more needs to be done for sure. It's just too many people dying. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you. That is Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver, talking about what they call the Vancouver model. This is for uh, drug decriminalization in the city, and they've submitted a plan to Health Canada. But of course, the opioid overdose crisis is complicated, right? It's not just one thing that's going to work. It's a whole bunch of things that need to be done. Uh, This one step of the plan is the safe, you know, the safe drug supply vending machines, another part of the plan. But I do wonder when I hear about all this, how do we still deal with the fact that so many people are dying when they use drugs by themselves in a private residence. 
How do you get into contact with those people? Get the people who have the hidden drug addiction to talk about their problem there, not just the people that we know are having these issues, right? It's such a complicated thing to deal with. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. Oh, what a great song for this, right? If I asked you, what is the most BC restaurant you can think of? I'm going to guess that, you know, White Spot would probably be your answer. Of course it is. So will it work if you take that BC legend and try it out in, say, southern Ontario? Well, Triple O's is going to try that. They want to open 30 locations across the southern part of Ontario. Let's talk to Triple O's and White Spot President Warren Earhart about that. Good morning, Warren. Good morning, Simi. Cheeseburger in paradise. Love it, right? <laughs> That's like having a legendary hamburger in paradise here in BC. Uh, well, what, well, what brought this well, about? Well, look, no, we've, uh, you know, we've been actually been looking at the Ontario market for a number of years, and a lot of... Uh, both expats and, and folks have, have contacted us over the years saying that, you know, we're, you know why aren't you in Ontario? You know, what, what's, what's keeping you from coming here as well? So uh, we just, this is, nobody planned the pandemic, but this is what we uh, have been working on behind the scenes for quite a while now. And, um, and it's showtime. We opened yesterday our first restaurant. And how was it yesterday? It was outstanding. There's, uh, you know, we're just getting out and, uh, you know, we opened with uh, both DoorDash and Skip and, and uh, some expats that we sort of knew from here that have been sort of contacting us, sending out some some email blasts and things that way as well. It was a good first day. So, uh, no, we're, we're really kind of excited. So, did you have to change anything? Like, how do you adjust? It's a very BC thing, but did you tinker with it at all to move it to a different region? Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, so, I mean, we've been very successful in our Hong Kong restaurants many years ago. So we know that we could actually, we can replicate product and, and making sure that we could have this, the same true taste of triple O's uh, elsewhere. And, uh, but it was tricky this time because of the pandemic, you know, the, the, for instance, food replication to make sure that we, we've always got this passionate white spot about buying local. And, and uh, how do we make sure that we have a local product um, and in a new market like that, where we had to replicate suppliers. And so this, this virtual replication of products with suppliers and air freighting buns back and forth across the country to make sure that what we saw virtually on a, on a, on a bakery actually happened as far as the taste and flavor profile with our recipes and ingredients. So it was, was really, really, the two areas really were the, the, the food replication piece to make sure that a, a triple O burger in, in Mississauga tastes the same as it does in Vancouver, but also the training uh, of our, our staff and management team to make right. sure that they were, they're really well trained. And that was really, really a, an interesting challenge as well. Warren, I'm surprised you didn't ask for volunteers for people who could taste these Ontario burgers and make sure they oh. tasted just like a BC one. I would have been well, up for that. <laughs> for sure. I think it was a veggie burger or the impossible burger your, are your favorite. I do love that. I do. So um, how how big is this plan? Is this just for Southern Ontario or are you thinking across Canada at this point? No, actually, you know, I'll tell you what's happened is we, we, we're opening storefront locations as well, but, but our, our partners with Parkland, which owns Chevron in British Columbia, own a number of gas stations in the Ontario market. So uh, the first two restaurants that we are opening are in um, one's Courtney Park, which is a Ultramar station, which opened yesterday. And then soon after, a month from now, we'll be opening our second location on Zenway Road, which is in Vaughan, Ontario, and it's in a Pioneer station. So the first two are going to be with uh, with our, our, our gas partners, the Chevron folks. And uh, we are, but we are actively looking for um, freestanding sites as well right. throughout 
uh, through the greater Toronto area to start. What about a full-on white spot? Like, we're talking triple O's, but what about the actual white spot restaurant? Yeah, actually, you know, we, we're sort of leading with triple O's, and, and uh, I wouldn't say no to, to white spot as well, being in that marketplace. But, you know, triple O's is, is taking sort of... Uh, some of White Spot's most popular products, burgers, fries, and shakes, as a, as a uh, starting place. Uh, I know the number of menu items. As far as White Spot, we've got a lot of proprietary items at White Spot. That was uh, would be a lot bigger uh, challenge for us to make sure we can replicate all those products as well. Not out of the question, but we're leading with triple O's. Well, now I want a triple O. So, uh, Warren, thank you very much for this. And listen, good luck. Well, thanks so much, Simi. I really appreciate it. That is Warren Earhart, uh, the president of Triple O's and White Spot, talking about how they are embarking on something new. They are bringing the legendary hamburger to southern Ontario. I know a lot of people from here who live out that way. In fact, as Warren was talking, I was thinking, i got to email my cousin now who can now go and get a legendary hamburger out there because I know she misses that. Uh, so this will be interesting to see if that flies out there, if there are enough, say, expats in the Southern Ontario area to make that work for them.